Let's, um, let's open up to Esther chapter 3 this morning as we continue our time through uh, the book together. And as you're opening it, let's just read through the passage, and then we'll stop and pray and see how God would speak to us together. Esther chapter 3. I'm in Ezra. That's not going to work. Sorry. There we go. Esther chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily, and he would not listen to them, that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay his hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast Pur, that is, the lot, before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a people scattered through and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other peoples, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries." So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were called on the thirteenth day of the first month, and a decree was written according to all that Haman had commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the officials of all people to every province according to its script, and to every people in their language. In the name of King Ahasuerus it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring. And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions." A copy of the document was issued as law in every province being published for all people that they should be ready for that day. The couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan, the the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan was perplexed. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for these reminders that you are at work, even when we don't perceive it. Uh, It's not as if heaven opens up and we see your hand uh, 
changing a heart, moving in a situation, lifting up one person, setting down another, and yet your word reminds us that there's never a day that you take off. There's never a day where you're not at work in human history and not just human history at large, our lives individually. And we pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. As we get back to Esther this morning, I kind of have to start with a bit of confession. Truthfully, I've always had mixed feelings about the book of Esther. And let me just say, yes, I absolutely believe and appreciate that it's part of God's inspired word. And so I know that he desires to speak to me through this book. But I have also had some real trouble with the way this book is represented at times. Again, kind of like Lucas mentioned last week, when Esther is presented as some sort of Disney princess singing her way into the heart of the king, I wonder, are you reading the same book that I'm reading? Because Esther did not become queen because she sang very well or a glass slipper happened to fit her foot. I'm not totally comfortable with the path that Esther takes from the unknown to queen. And I look at Mordecai, and we kind of look at a little bit of his story today, and it makes me think, do I really know all of Mordecai's story? Is he really the person that we make him out to be? But as we've been studying the book together, I have been so struck by the parallels that exist between us and the times in which we live. Esther speaks loud and clear to our day and age because as I might have questions around Esther or Mordecai, let's be real. If someone were to write our biographies and the story of how God used our lives and worked through our lives, there would certainly be chapters and stories that we're not too proud of. We might say, you know, is there any way we could maybe just shorten that little bit? Can we tighten up that part of the story? I feel like that's going into a lot of detail that's not really necessary. If our story was told like Esther's and Mordecai, it would be clear that God worked in our lives and through our lives because he's faithful and good, not because we're spectacular, wonderful people. And it's not just Esther and Mordecai that make the story applicable, is it? You look at the context of the things happening there and you say, boy, it feels a lot like the stuff going on in our world today. We see people living, God's people living in a world that wants nothing to do with their God. Uh, We see godless individuals being lifted to positions of power, instituting godless policies and ideas. And it just feels like, you know, that could just be our news headlines ported back onto ancient Persia. And taken all together, whether it's the people or the historical events, this book gives us a great deal of hope, doesn't it? It doesn't take a whole lot of digging on our part to see parallels and applications to our lives. We can see that God is at work, that he can work in us, flawed people, broken people with some sketchy history and things that we're not proud of. God can be at work in our lives. And if he can be at work in the the political climate and the events of those days, he can be at work in the events that make up our news headlines. It's a book that speaks loud and clear to us today. And so as we go through chapter 3, it's my hope that we'll see this call to live godly lives, to really step up and to move away from the ways that we felt comfortable in compromise. Hope that we're encouraged that even though the world around us may be moving in some godless directions, we serve a God who is still at work 
and not to shrink back and say, hey, unless everything is just going right, that's when God can truly be at work. I hope chapter 3 speaks to us loud and clear. Well, as we move into verse 1, it opens with this connecting phrase, after these things. And this little phrase here, these words do a couple of things for us. First of all, they show us the flow of time that's happening through the book of Esther. Because if you're just reading it, it feels like the chapters can flow one into the next. But there are actually some quiet spans of time in between our chapters. If you were to dig back through chapters 1, 2, and 3, you'd find that chapter 1, verse 3, tells us the story begins in the third year of the reign of King Ahasuerus. And then as you keep reading, it seems like chapter 2 smashes right into chapter 1. But as you dig into it, verse 16 tells us that about four years have passed because now Esther is chosen as king or queen rather in the seventh year and ten, tenth month of Ahasuerus' reign. And then again, it feels like chapter 3 just bang right up against the end of chapter 2. But verse 7 tells us that it's now the twelfth year and the first month. And so after these things that opens up chapter 3 here, it actually indicates the passage of about four years. Esther has been queen and on the throne next to the king for a period of about four years. And that's one thing that these words do for us. But they also tie the events together. After these things, it helps us look back and it shows us that this is not a random flow of events. The author, by using this phrase, is connecting these events to the events that came before, reminding us that God is the unseen overseer of all that's happening. And these events lead one to the next because God is connecting the dots, not just because they are randomly occurring. God is setting up his plan and positioning things according to his purposes. And when I just stop there for a moment, And remember that truth. I take a great deal of encouragement from that. That the events that surround us are not just random. They may feel that way at times. In fact, our our language even carries words like serendipitous and coincidence to capture this idea that things just randomly happen. And what what a fortuitous uh, occurrence of events that just happened to be there at that place and that time. But what goes on in our world is so much more than serendipity or just random coincidence. God is at work connecting the dots that make up the events of our lives. The fear that comes when we feel things are outside of our control and they're random with no ability on our part to influence them can be settled when we remember that God is in control. Life isn't like a plane with no pilot in the cockpit. We're not like a leaf just randomly being tumbled about in the wind. Revelation chapter 4 opens with this throne in heaven, and on that throne over all creation, God sits there enthroned. There is someone in charge of all creation, presiding over all creation and presiding over our lives. So after these things, let's just know that God is at work through the flow of time. And after these things, we read that King Ahasuerus promotes Haman. Interestingly, within these God-ordered events, this God-governed flow of time, a wicked man named Haman is promoted to what appears to be the second highest position in all of the empire. 
Verse 1 tells us that he was promoted above every other prince. And in verse 10, the king gives Haman his signet ring, which is basically the symbol to the, of his authority, basically his keys to the kingdom. And we're not told why King Ahasuerus does this, but it certainly wasn't Haman's shining character that puts him up for promotion like this. Throughout the book, we're going to see that Haman is petty, he's prideful, and he's self-centered to the extreme. And then there's the other obvious thing. The man was completely comfortable to order and fund a genocide. Now, since we know how the story ends, we don't feel a whole lot of alarm over that, do you? You read chapter 3 and you see this uh, order to kill all the Jews, and you're kind of like, yeah, but it's not going to happen, so I'm not too alarmed about it. But just stop and think about it for a moment. The evil that lived within this man's heart to request such a thing, to order and to fund a genocide. And and like it says later in the chapter, young and old, women and children alike, it wasn't just the men, it wasn't just the armies of the Jews or people who were in a fighting age and and, uh, capability, it was everything, all of them. He wants every Jew from Ethiopia to India killed, men, women, and children. This is on par with Pharaoh's order to kill the baby boys born in Egypt. It's on par with Herod's order to go into the, uh, Bethlehem and the surrounding regions and to kill every boy two years old and younger. And of course, it's on par with Hitler's commands and desires and actions in Europe in our own modern history. Again, I feel a bit removed from these things, and and in part because I know how the story goes, but the evil that's present within this man's heart, it should shake us. An order of genocide is no small thing. It's not just another news item to turn the page and see what happened in sports yesterday. And part of what makes this whole thing feel odd is remembering that these events happened within God's sovereign oversight, This wasn't some blip on the radar that God wasn't aware that he was doing some work over here and and then in the back door sneaks Haman. It's hard for us to reconcile in our minds that God who is all good allows even evil men to be promoted into positions of power. Haman's promotion is within the boundaries of God's sovereign plan. Psalm 75 verses 6 and 7 says, For exaltation or promotion comes neither from the east, from the west, nor the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. I want to encourage you to take a moment to read that whole psalm. It's not long, but the whole psalm speaks to this idea of God being in control even when wicked people are raised into positions of power. Even when someone like Haman, who plots murder and genocide, comes to power, God is still on the throne over creation. In fact, this lesson is taught throughout the scriptures. We often see God using evil men to accomplish his good purposes. God allowed Pharaoh to turn up the heat on the Israelites so that they would no longer be comfortable with the leeks and onions that they had there and want to get back to the land that God had promised them. 
You remember the time that we spent in the book of Habakkuk studying how God was going to use the Babylonians to judge the Israelites and how Habakkuk stumbled over this idea saying, God, they're a much more wicked nation than we are. How could you possibly use the wicked to judge those who are in the neighborhood of righteous? These things are troubling for us. The reality is Haman is not the first wicked person to be promoted within the boundaries of God's purposes and plans, and he's clearly not the last. And when I realize this, it makes me ask, how do we respond when something like this happens in our times? Again, just turning the mirror of the word on our lives for a moment. What does it reveal about our faith when a bill passes that absolutely grieves us to the core. We look at the language of that bill and what it accomplishes us and something just dies inside. God, how could you allow that to happen? How could this language possibly govern our nation or our state? And we just grieve. What does that reveal about our faith? Or what about when our candidate doesn't win and someone else gets into a position of power at whatever tier of government and we say, what in the world? How, how did this person get to this place? What do we do in moments like that? Because it certainly happens, right? It certainly happens where we see legislation, and we see people in authority, and we just say, this person is so far from the heart of God. Do we say, oh man, God must be off the throne. He's just, he's forgotten about this, this or he, he's forgotten about this whole thing, and Somehow this, this enemy has done an end around and we start to fret and we start to worry or do we remind ourselves of what the Bible teaches? That there is a throne in heaven over all creation and God sits on that throne and that there is not a single event in human history, no matter how hard it is for us to understand, that he is not taking and working according to his good plans. The evil that the enemy wants to accomplish, God is allowing it to work for good. And we need books like Esther to remind us that God is sovereign. Even when godless uh, people are chosen for positions of power. I love uh, earlier in Psalm 75, the Lord says, When I choose the proper time, I will judge uprightly. God's saying, I haven't forgotten. When someone like Haman comes into power, or when a bill passes that is absolutely wicked, God says, I will choose the proper time and I will deal with that thing. For Haman, spoiler alert here, that judgment is going to come in a few chapters. In just a few chapters, he's going to stand before God, his life gone, his last breath taken, and he'll stand before God judged for who he was. For other people in history, they lived a prolonged life, but they still stood before God and had to answer for the things that they did. They stepped into eternity. And so whether judgment comes swiftly or slowly, God will always, always be a just God. It's been said before that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And that's not something innate within the universe like gravity pulling things down. That statement is true because God is a just God. And he is at work in the fabric of history to bend it towards justice. 
You read through the laws that he sets up for the people of Israel, and we wonder, why is God so concerned with the weights of things? You know, he says, don't even fudge a little bit when you're weighing out, you know, the flour in the grocery store. He doesn't want that thing where the butcher is pushing down on the scale and the, the, uh, the client, the person is tipping up on the scale to try and make the thing a little bit different. God is so concerned about justice and equity that he wants even a thing of bananas to be weighed at the right weight. And if that's this, the detail to which he pays attention, how much more so over the long and over the great. God is sovereign. God is just. And so when godless people rise to power, even in our days, we can find confidence knowing that God is sovereign and just, resting in his long game. What a trusting thing for us to do. What rest we can find there. So Haman, exalted and promoted to power. And we move through that. We see further how the king wanted to exalt Haman. He says that he's given this a decree that all the king's servants who were within the gates bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily that he would not listen to them, that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew." Again, more insight into the favor that uh, Ahasuerus gives to Haman. He gives this additional decree. Not only does this man have this position of power, but to top it off, he wants everybody else, all the other kind of ruling authorities, to bow down to Haman when he walks by. So when Haman walks by, you were expected to bow down, not just kind of nod your head, but prostrate yourself. Get down on your hands and knees to pay him this special honor. But Mordecai refuses And you can imagine how he must have stuck out like a sore thumb. Everyone around him goes down to their hands and knees while he remains standing. And it seems somehow that Haman was too busy to notice. Either Mordecai is kind of in a different area and it's not in Haman's field of vision, or Haman is just so busy with looking at other things, he doesn't notice Mordecai. But those around Mordecai notice, hey, we're all down here. Why are you still standing? And it says that they began kind of pestering him. Why aren't you bowing down to Haman? We're all doing this thing. Why aren't you? What makes you so special, so different? And in verse 4, we learn that Mordecai explains his behavior by saying that he was a Jew. Hey, the reason I don't bow to Haman is because I'm a Jew. I'm of Jewish descent. When you stop for a moment and think, this whole interaction brings up some questions about Mordecai in my mind. The more I stop to think about Mordecai, the more interesting he becomes. Here he has this position of influence among the gates, which is, it's a way of, it's in that time kind of talking about city hall. It's a place where people of power came to talk and and bandy about ideas. It's a position of influence. Mordecai seems to be a sensible individual, raising Esther and kind of guiding her at key points in the story. And because we know how the story ends, Mordecai seems like a hero to us. I mean, God used him at a very pivotal time to accomplish a really great rescue of God's people. And yet I think there's a bit more to this story. This interaction that we see here, that up until this point he's kept his Jewish heritage a secret, you couple that with what he told Esther to do back in chapter 20, or chapter 2, verse 20, he tells her, don't tell anyone that you're a Jew. 
keep that on the down low. Don't tell anybody about our heritage. Up until this moment, Mordecai has been unwilling to let people know that he's of Jewish descent. And it makes me wonder, how much of his heritage did Mordecai let go in order to keep it a secret? How much did he tamp down and keep hidden so that others wouldn't know his ethnicity? And obviously we can't say all that had happened and led up to it. But here in this moment, all of that history comes to a line where Mordecai won't cross. Something snaps in Mordecai. For a long time, he's been willing to tamp down and to keep quiet and to keep hush about his history. And now he comes out into the open in the most dramatic of ways. He's brought to a line that he simply will not cross. Remember, this is the same guy who told Esther to hide his Jewish, her Jewish descent, who hid his own heritage, and he's now coming forward in the most public of settings. Everybody else hits the deck, and Mordecai stays standing. And he explains to those who are asking that his defiance of Haman is rooted in the fact that he's a Jew. And when I see this whole interaction, it just feels like, I feel like there's a whole lot of Mordecai's story that I don't know. What clicked in his mind that he saw a bright line that he says, I just can't cross that line. There's a line now in front of me, a compromise that I just can't make. Made too many of these already, and this is one too many. And he finally washes his hands of it and says, I'm, I'm out in the light, no longer walking in the shadows. And I have to ask those same type of questions in my own life. And I hope someone like Mordecai makes you wonder about your life as well. What parts of my walk with God do I hide or suppress for whatever reason, convenience sake? I don't want to have to explain my decision at work. I don't have to explain why I'm doing X, Y, and Z. It's just easier if I don't let people know this is who I am. Are there parts of my walk with God that I hide because it, It's going to make my life easier. It's going to make it more convenient. In what ways am I like Peter on the night Jesus was arrested, following him at a distance? There's a safe gap between me and Jesus where people maybe won't connect me with him. I'm not saying you're arranging your whole life in that way or that I'm arranging my whole life in that way, but are there things like Mordecai where I've been willing to tamp down, small compromises I've been willing to make for whatever reason? And after asking those questions, I have to ask another set of questions. What will it take for me to change? If I have been compromising in areas and willing to kind of keep things on the down low and not really make a big deal of it, what's it going to take for me to change and come out and say, yes, I follow Jesus. He's mine and I'm his. How far will I have to go before, like Mordecai, I reach a line that I'm not willing to cross? It's one compromise too many. Gang, I don't ask these questions to shame us or to hit you over the head with some guilt trip. I ask these questions because we need to, I need to be honest about my life. It'd be a shame for me to see Mordecai stepping away from compromise and not be challenged to step away from the compromise that's in my own life. That I'm comfortable being close to the light, but I can also kind of on the edge here where I can tuck back into the shadows if I think it benefits me. Now, I'm not saying that you need to start every conversation with, just so you know, I'm a Jesus follower. You're, you know, in line at the grocery store and the person's asking you, hey, do you find everything today? And you're like, hey, I just want to come right out front and let you know 
I followed Jesus. And yeah, I did find everything I needed. That's, that's not the type of like transparency that we're talking about. But I am saying, let's be a people of integrity. Let's ask God to fill us with his spirit in such a way that we can be witnesses of him, salt and light, instead of people who, like Mordecai previously, were willing to keep things hidden under wraps on the down low because it was inconvenient or what else. Let's not wait until there's a certain set of circumstances that presents a line that we're just finally not willing to compromise. How many times have we said, here's the line, and then we redraw it a little bit later because we cross that line? I don't know. Maybe that's not your experience, but I know I've done that plenty of times in my life. Here's the line. I'm, I just won't do that. And then something dies inside when we cross that line and say, well, now, the, I mean, this is now really the line. I definitely won't cross that one. Let's be those who say, I'm just not going to live a life of compromise. I'm not going to hide who I am. I'm going to follow Jesus in the light. Holy Spirit, transform me. Make me a witness. So Haman uh, comes to power. Mordecai finally reaches a line that he won't cross. He brings out his heritage into the open. And this news is brought to Haman. When Haman sees that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. And he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. So Mordecai's defiance is now brought to Haman's attention. And when he does so, Haman is absolutely enraged. One person who does not acknowledge his greatness is one too many. I love how David Guzik makes this observation about Haman. He says, Haman was an extremely proud and insecure man. He could only consider himself a success if everyone else thought he was a a success. Here, one person pokes at his pride and he goes completely off the rails. But isn't that just the way of pride? I mean, you look at Haman and you just think, wow, that escalated quickly. You went from being angry at a guy to demanding the execution of his whole people group. But isn't that what pride does? I mean, maybe not that extreme for the most part, but pride sends us off the rails in so many silly and foolish things. Pride leads us to do some ridiculous things. You and I would rather stay on the course of self-sabotage through sinful behavior than admit we're wrong. No, this is not sin, and no, I'm not going to apologize for it. I'm going to keep doing this thing even though we see the cost that it's extracting from us, our family, our friends, our situation at work. But our pride says, no, don't admit you're wrong. Rather than saying we're sorry and humbling ourselves in some relationship, we continue to undermine and sabotage that relationship because we're unwilling to yield our pride. No, I'm not going to apologize until they apologize for X, Y, and Z, whatever, fill in the blank. And our pride says, not until they do it first. And we're willing to continue to sabotage a marriage, a family relationship, a friend uh, friend relationship, a work dynamic, because our pride says, don't do it. And like Haman, we go off the rails because we're poked in our pride. And I'm not saying that you're trying to order genocide in your workplace or, you know, that you're contemplating murder in your family. But I am saying pride leads us to do some really silly things harmful, foolish things. And again, if I can't see myself in the Word, I'm not reading it right. 
And we have to ask questions like this. And so Haman, he just goes off the rails. He's filled with wrath, and he takes this poke of his pride to an unimaginable extreme. In his pride, he not only wants that man to bow, he actually wants that man to die. And not just that man, he wants everyone who is in that man's people group to die. Every other Jew in the Persian Empire, he wants a massive genocide. And this is so much more, sadly, than a a rash statement made in a fit of rage. Haman actually takes time to formulate a plan. Verse 7 tells us that the people cast lots to determine uh, the day that this genocide would begin. In verse 7, it says again, they cast purr. That means he's brought other people into his plan. He's not just in his bedroom casting the dice to figure out when's a good day to do this thing. He's got other people working alongside him trying to figure out when should we kill every man, woman, and Jewish uh, child around. This is so much more than one man muttering to himself about something he'll never do. He's determined to carry out this plan. But it's worth noting that while Satan may be wanting to use Haman to wipe out the Jews, God is still in control. Just to take a step back, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, we read, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And so even in this moment when they're casting the lot to figure out when should we commit this genocide, God is at work. Even in a moment that should be characterized by Satan's desire to steal, kill, and destroy, God is at work directing events, making sure that when the lot is cast, its decision is from him. And the lot falls on the month of Adar, the 12th month. And since they are rolling the dice in the first month, there's now 11 months for God to accomplish his purpose and his rescue amount of time that's possible here. And so we pick up in verse 8, Haman said to King Ahasuerus, you know, there's this certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. And their laws are different from all the other peoples and they do not keep the king's law. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. Haman had been given a lot of power in the kingdom, but this wasn't a plan that he could carry out on his own authority. He needs the king's permission. And so he goes to Ahasuerus to pitch his genocide. And of course, he paints the truth to accomplish his own purpose. Instead of telling Ahasuerus, you know, there's this one guy who won't bow to me according to your command. He paints a picture of a dangerous, rebellious people scattered throughout the empire. And he says, King, it is not in your best interest to let these people go unaddressed because they're going to corrupt, they're going to cause your empire to fall from the inside out. They can't be let remain. They can't be allowed to remain in the kingdom. They must be killed. And Haman says, I'm a good guy, so I'll fund the whole thing. Out of my own coffers, I'll pay for all the work needed to eradicate them. And so, verse 10, the king took his signet ring from his hand, and he gives it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you. 
The king buys into this plan. Uh, no supporting research is needed. He's not like, wow, that's a pretty bold claim, Haman. Uh, let me see some evidence that these, this people group that you're talking about are actually, you know, kind of fomenting rebellion and, and plotting these things. He doesn't say, gosh, man, that's, that's a pretty extreme, you know, measure for us to take, Haman. We should bring some other counselors in on this. Let me get some other wise heads to kind of think through. Is this a good, a good decision for our kingdom? He just says, you got it, man. Here's my, you know, my employee card. You can just go use this wherever you want to in the kingdom. It'll open every door you need. He just buys right into it. And so rather than governing the empire with wisdom, Ahasuerus just seems so much more interested in, in partying and making a name for himself and kind of a life of ease. You look at this moment and the others that we've seen throughout the book, and there's not really much to show Ahasuerus to be a, a competent leader, even though that he's at the head of this nation. But again, before I blast Ahasuerus, I need to look at myself in the mirror. What would I expect of a man here who doesn't acknowledge God or want any part of him in his ways? If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, why should I expect that Ahasuerus, who has no fear of God, has any wisdom in his life? I shouldn't be too surprised when a godless man makes godless decisions. And so again, what about us? What about you? God has given each one of us certain levels of influence and opportunities. Ahasuerus certainly had an extreme amount of that as king and emperor, but you and I have context and settings where we have influence and leadership. Maybe you're a business owner or the director or manager of an organization. Or maybe it's in a smaller setting, say within the group of friends. I know we have the junior hires in here with us this morning. Maybe it's that friends group that you have a voice in that setting. Does our leadership and influence reflect the wisdom of God born out of love for him and a fear of him? Does our leadership, whether it's in a large setting or a small setting, uh, reflect the priorities and approaches of the scriptures? Or are we more like a Ahasuerus in this book? We're just, just kind of going with the flow, more interested in a good time than we are in a godly example. I really want to encourage you this morning. This is one of the things I felt was so important from the Lord as, we, as I was preparing for this morning. Don't miss the opportunities that God has given you to lead and influence in certain areas. You know, one of my biggest regrets in life is the way that I failed to influence my younger brother when I was in high school and he was a middle schooler. My leadership role in that setting, I wasn't, you know, managing some big con- you know, company. I wasn't, uh, you know, in, high up in some org chart somewhere. Just me and my only other sibling, my younger brother. In this instance, my sphere of influence was one person. And I look back on that season, and I've failed miserably. Instead of showing him what it looked like to live sold out for Jesus, I showed him a life of compromise and just going after the fun things that the world seemed to offer a high schooler. I had a chance to lead well, but I missed it. And I bring up this little personal story because you might be thinking this morning, I really don't have a whole lot of influence in my life. I'm not high up on an org chart. My, my sphere of influence is pretty small. It could be measured on one hand. 
Mine too. But don't phone it in and say, well, until there's 10 people that I can influence, until there's 50 people that I can influence, until there's an organization that responds to my leadership, then I'll step up and lead. If it's just one person, step up and lead well. Don't phone it in like a Hasawaris and be so content with what the world offers us. Use the place and the opportunity that God has given to you. Live passionately for Jesus and make a mark on the lives of those around you. Again, I only say that because I've seen how I've missed it. And I want desperately for us to be a people who says, even if it's just one person, I want to point them to the Lord and do my level best to influence in that way. How they respond is up to them. You can't govern their response. And I may have, uh, in that moment, tried to lead my brother well. And he may not have responded, even if I had tried. I'm not saying I can go back and reverse things. But try. Don't say, ah, I've got this one talent the Lord's given me. I'm just going to bury it and give it back to him when he comes back. I'll, I'll just, better not to lose it than to, you know, try and fail. Don't bury the opportunities God has given you. And when I look at Ahasuerus and I see this awful example of leadership, just a man who failed miserably. I can't come down on him too hard because if, if I'm not willing to look at the opportunities for leadership in my life. And so Ahasuerus, he just, the man, Haman comes to him and says, hey, I'd like to commit genocide. And he's like, let's go for it. You say you're going to pay for it? I'm down. Here's my ring. You can do all these things. And then in verses 12 through 15, rather than rereading them again, the, the order is transcribed into every language that fit within the empire, and it's sent out from Ethiopia to India. I mean, the expanse of the Persian Empire at this point is significant. The decree is written up and sent everywhere. There's not to be any corner in the empire that hasn't received this order. No small village, no large city. Everyone is to know that on the 13th of Adar, they're to go out and kill the Jews. And so... We read with the order signed and sent out at the end of the chapter, Haman, uh, the king and Haman sat down to drink. It is, this is mind-blowing to me. Having just ordered the execution of an entire people group, they toasted their partnership. And it's just madness. I just can't imagine this. But it shows us how far a person can go when there's no love for God, no fear of God in their hearts. The city around them is utterly confused by this insane order, and these two sit down for a drink like you and I might sit down for a cup of coffee. It's just crazy talk. But again, that's where sin can take us. This is the potential that lives within each of us in our fallen nature. As much as we might want to believe it, we're not actually better people than Ahasuerus and Haman. We're not intrinsically better people that we have less potential for sin in us than they did, that these guys somehow can sin to this extreme, but I could never, right? We've already talked around how the lines that we draw just continue to get redrawn further out. We've shown ourselves that we're capable of so much worse than we thought, Seeing these guys doesn't ultimately make me think, what a bunch of knuckleheads. Instead, right on the heels of that thought, I need to say, God, I need to stick close to you. 
I see the place that sin can take an individual. And if I don't stick close to you, who knows what kind of behavior I'm capable of? Who knows what kind of foolish and harmful things I could do if you weren't working in my heart? And so we pray like Jesus taught us, lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from the evil one. Keep me from causing harm. Keep me from harboring secret sin in my life. Haman and Ahasuerus are in this place because there's no love of God for them. None of his uh, work in their hearts to transform and to put the things that are important to, his, to him in their hearts. And I don't want to get to that place. As we wrap up, there's one last important thing I want to um, observe before we close out our chapter. Chapter 3 has just introduced the main antagonist in the story, as well as the threat to our protagonists, uh, Esther, Mordecai, and the Jewish people. And these are, just, these are more than just elements in a fictional story. Remember, Haman is a real person with a real hatred toward the Jews, which led him to push towards a real order of genocide. Chapter 3 introduces some really scary stuff. But let me ask a question of you Bible buffs, you theology wonks out there. Which comes first, chapter 2 or chapter 3? I know, it's deep stuff. I know this is deep theological questions. How many angels can dance on the head of a pin? Which comes first, chapter 2, chapter 3? Now, obviously, chapter 2, I'm teasing because it's obvious to us. And this is encouraging because in chapter 2, God put in place the answer to the problem that would arise in chapter 3. Before the problem ever hits chapter 3, God already has his answer in place in chapter 2. Before there was a problem, God was already positioning the answer. Esther, God's answer to the problem of Haman and his evil plan, has been in place next to the king, as we said at the beginning of the chapter, for four plus years. God wasn't reacting in this moment thinking, oh man, I didn't see this plan coming, what should I do? In truth, God's plan to cover his people has been in place not just for the four years that span chapter 2 and 3, but all the way reaching into eternity past. And this ought to be encouraging to us. When the unexpected or the ungodly happens around us, you and I can be so worried and so anxious. That bill, I can't believe it passed. That person, I can't believe they're now uh, voted into office. We can become so worried and so anxious. Remember, God is in control. He knew about this long before we did. This bill, he knew about it long before it ever entered the the minds of those who pushed it forward. Or maybe the unexpected thing that comes into our life is much more personal in nature. It's not some sort of thing out there in the world around us. It's within our own family. Maybe an aging parent takes a fall. And all of a sudden, the the responsibility of their care and oversight of their condition, it's now in our lap, completely unexpected. We woke up this morning with a whole set of plans. The call comes in at noon. All of a sudden, our plans are heading the other direction. Life just took an unexpected turn. And a whole set of emotions comes into our minds. Thoughts come flooding into our minds. In that moment, God is still in control. He knew about that event long before it ever happened. And please hear me on this. I'm not trying to say that these things aren't weighty, that they're not scary, or they don't have an impact on our lives, but I am saying that God knows and that he is in control, that 
answer to Haman and his plan was in place for over four years before we even read about this thing. And who knows the way that God has been working in your life in advance of the problems that will come today, tomorrow, or later this week. Esther, the book, calls us to trust God, to remember that he's at work even when we don't see it. His hand is in our circumstances, even in moments where it seems like everything is against us. And so let's be a people that trust God, to honor him in the midst of the world that wants nothing to do with him, people who are willing to stay, to stand up and to be counted as his. Excuse me, our faith is shining example and an invitation to those around us. I want to have the worship team come back up and close this in a last song of, uh, or a last song of two. I'm going to pray for us. As I'm praying and as we go into worship again, we're going to move towards communion this morning. If you haven't grabbed communion during the song, sneak out into the lobby, grab the communion elements, and I'm going to come back up after a moment and lead us in that. But I wanted just to stop and pause for a minute rather than running right into communion, but to just stop and pause and say, Lord, thank you for being in control. To pause for a moment and just hold these things in our hands as we worship for a bit and remembering God's work around us. Would you close in prayer with me this morning? Father, we want to trust you. And I know at times that's a fearful thing to do. That everything in us screams that Something is out of control. Something is out of place. We need to be worried and frightened by a certain thing. Lord, would you help us trust you today? Give us the grace and the faith to do that. Lord, in the ways that we need to see how this book speaks to us, would you speak to us? Give us ears to hear this morning and a heart that sees how we respond to and apply these things. Lord, transform our lives. Use us like you were able to use Esther and Mordecai, the way you've been using lives throughout human history to protect your people, to draw people to yourself, to build your kingdom. Would you show us the part that we play? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.